You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, and I'm curious to know, Wade, do you prefer your rabble-rousing remarks to be spontaneous and off-the-cuff or meticulously Sorkin-esque? Well, you know, like Sorkin's characters, I believe that I'm smarter than I really am. We we can walk and talk about that a little bit further on in the podcast. Listeners, today we review Sorkin's new film on Netflix, The Trial of the Chicago 7. We're also going to be getting around to offering you our fall movie preview of sorts. With release schedules up in the air, there's only so much we can do to peer into our crystal balls, but we're going to be doing our best here in the second half of the show. Let's just hope that none of these movies disappear from the calendar like those superheroes did in Avengers Infinity War. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 267 of Seeing and Believing. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was gonna be the first wish of mine that came true, I would've aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Yes, listeners, we are here with episode 267. After taking a week off, I finally got moved into my house. So there was a lot of stuff happening. Didn't have internet for a while, which made me feel, Kevin, like Matt Damon in The Martian, just kind of stranded. But all's good. (laughs) We have our televisions. We have our internet. We're fine. Everything is fine. Okay, so so you are now using store-bought potatoes rather than homegrown ones, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's all we ate. We, we just ate the, toma- the t- tomatoes. We ate tomatoes. We ate the potatoes that we, uh, that we grew in the backyard, and, and that was it. But uh, we're, we're up and running. And I'm excited too, Kevin, because uh, the weather is changing. It's getting a little bit cooler here. In Houston, we can actually go outside in the evenings. It's it's you know, it's <laughs> delightful. I know it's also getting cooler up there in Chicago. We're going to talk about fall movies, movies that we're excited about that are hopefully releasing in 2020. We're going to do that later on the show. And even though the calendar's been disrupted, Kevin, there are some really great movies still coming. Yeah, yeah. And we're looking forward to them. And we're also grateful to them in a way that they have revealed the arbitrary and man-made nature of the the calendar, the Julian calendar. It's just sort of like <laughs> we now see that it is just an arbitrary construct forced onto reality, and we're going to treat it as such from now on. <laughs> forced onto reality by the pagan Roman emperor, uh, Julian. No, I think that's who. I guess that's the right Julian. I don't know. I... <laughs> I, I I think you're right. Who I I should know this because I've been reading up on the Roman Empire lately, and uh, I know that there was a there was a Julian the Apostate, but I don't know if he's mm-hmm. the one that the calendar is named after. So okay, who knows? yeah, yeah, the one that left the faith of Constantine, uh, and he made this calendar. Now we all have to live by it. Uh, <laughs> his bad choice. No, uh, yeah, I'm excited about that uh, coming up. But this week we do begin with our review of Netflix's newest offering, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Here's the movie's official synopsis. What was intended to be a peaceful protest at the 1968 Democratic National Convention turned into a violent clash with police and the National Guard. The organizers of the protest, including Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale, were charged with conspiracy to incite a riot, and the trial that followed was one of the most notorious in history. The trial of the Chicago 7 was indeed written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and stars Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, Mark Rylance, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Kevin, we've both sung the praises of uh, Sorkin's screenplays in the past. The Social Network landed on both of our top 10 films of the decade lists. Moneyball 
also made the cut for me too. So he had two in my top 10. That's a, that's a big deal. But while we didn't give it a formal review on the show, Sorkin's directorial debut, 2017's Molly's Game, left us both a little cold. So to get us started, my question to you is this. Do you think The Trial of the Chicago 7 sees Sorkin develop as a director? Or is his talent better left on the page? Well, I I think that the the answer, I guess, to the second part of that question is that his I do think his talent is better left to the page. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of growth in him as a as a director between this film and Molly's Game. I like this film a lot more than Molly's Game, though. I, I will say that, and I wonder if part of that is just due to the fact that the courtroom drama is just such a a sturdy frame for a story that it maybe makes for a more ideal uh, structure for Sorkin to sort of hang his uh, delightful dialogue off of rather than relying a little bit more on pairing his confident writing with less confident directing as we saw in Molly's game. I I also think the screenplay that he came up with for the trial of the Chicago seven is a little bit uh, stronger than the one for Molly's game as well. So that helps a little bit as well. Um, I do think that there's there's a lot of fun to be had in in the trial of Chicago 7. I think that the the sturdiness of the courtroom drama really does make for it's in in some ways I guess it's hard to completely mess something like that up, especially when like Sorkin you are very comfortable in an environment that's very focused on on words and conversations and uh, tense exchanges between adversaries. So that's definitely the comfort zone for Sorkin, and I think it's shown off to his benefit in this film. Yeah, no, I like this film much more than I liked Molly's Game. And, you know, Sorkin... I feel like his best work is done in conjunction with directors who will rein in his material. David Fincher is a a great example of this and in the social network, taking some of Sorkin's Sorkinisms, if that's the best way to say it, and sanding them down so that they're they're more um, uh, palpable if you will. So I think Sorkin at his best in this film and in his screenplays uh, allows us to see a a picture of the world that, that maybe we don't normally see. And his dialogue is is layered. And so you can have conversations and then you can have conversations going on behind the conversations. And then you have realities that the characters don't even realize, but we realize as an audience. And I think the greatest example of this is that fantastic opening scene, and I've talked about this before, in the social network between Zuckerberg and his his girlfriend. And they're they're talking past each other, and we really get this sense of Zuckerberg's character. Uh, I think at his worst, Sorkin his 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 dialogue is a little demonstrative. I think it's it's uh, overt. And if I'm giving a good example, let me give a bad example. There's this conversation near the end of Molly's game between her and Kevin Costner, uh, who plays her father. And uh, it is not good. It is not good at all. It's really, it's a terrible scene. And uh, the actors, the performers can't save it. So the same could be said here. I, I think we get some some really good dialogue of the motivations uh, these characters have in the Chicago Seven, and the, char- the maybe the motivations they don't know that they have, and as they kind of bounce off of each other, uh, we get some some great interactions. We get some great courtroom drama, but then there are other moments where it's like, okay, yeah, like we we get it, Sorkin. At this point, these characters aren't really human beings; they're just robots speaking <laughs> ideas, and and so I, I think that's there. But it's not as uh, it's not as a pro- as much of a problem for me in this film because some of the other parts are just I think just really well done. 
I, you know, I do think you're onto something there with the the fact that there's not a whole lot of meat on these characters' bones, at least as as they're written. And I think that kind of comes through in the finished product where we see some of the actors are able to find interesting notes to play, even though the material on the page is kind of doesn't have doesn't really invest these characters with a whole lot of of interiority or or distinctiveness. And some some of the actors are more successful than others at finding those interesting notes to play. I especially want to uh, call out uh, Frank Langella as Judge Julius Hoffman. He's kind of this <laughs> yeah. this elderly. You know, if the movie has a villain, this guy is it, right? He's <laughs> he he runs his courtroom in a very arbitrary, authoritarian manner. He's very obviously biased, and it would have been easy for the actor playing him to just sort of let him be kind of this very remote, cold, unsympathetic figure and trust the audience's sympathies to do all of the heavy lifting, right? In terms of making that a memorable character. But what Langella does is he kind of, you know, he does play the the sort of blood boiling notes of the judge's characters to a T. <laughs> he does a very good job of that, but he also finds interesting ways to add personality to the judge that I think a lesser actor wouldn't have found. I think, for example, there's a moment where um, a a witness comes to the stand who has uh, higher standing than the average witness in this trial. Uh, don't want to spoil anything, but in that moment, the demeanor of Langella's judge changes and he becomes very deferential, almost like he's sucking up to this witness and, and really wanting to almost make a good impression. And you get the sense that it's because this uh, Judge Hoffman, this man really uh, just respects authority to the point where he becomes almost subservient towards somebody who he thinks deserves it. But if he doesn't, if he sees himself as a higher status than somebody else, he becomes, you know, this very arbitrary, unfair judge that we see for the majority of the picture. And I think that's kind of what some of these other actors are able to find as well. I really enjoyed Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin. I think that Mark Rylance as the Chicago 7's uh, attorney is very good. I mean, it's sort of not really surprised to say that Mark Rylance is good in something, I know. And then Yahya Abdul-Mateen as Bobby Seal, I think, makes a really strong impression with kind of a, what I think might be a rather underwritten part on on Sorkin's end, but Mateen, Abdul-Mateen really finds the, the, the flesh to put on those bones and turn it into something pretty special. Yeah, yeah. I liked... Uh... A good deal of the character touches here, and you mentioned this sort of star witness, and we don't want to spoil it. He's really good. And then going back to Judge Hoffman, the way that Sorkin writes him, he is this very frustrating individual, but he has these moments where he, I wouldn't say that he offers mercy, but he he doesn't act with some of the anger and rage and frustration that he does earlier. And so a good example would be he's he's passing out these uh, <laughs> contempt charges across the board in this uh, court scene. And then there's someone who, who does something and you're like, okay, he's definitely going to do it. And he pauses and he doesn't do it. And he just kind of leaves. And so we, we never really know what's going to happen. And then it all kind of comes to a head in this, this scene where he does something incredibly heinous. And just kind of that back and forth, I, I think, uh, is, uh, is really kind of wonderful here. And, and it's worth noting, too, I think that the way Sorkin chooses to unfold this drama helps to lend towards viewership because uh, in, in, in this sort of mystery, it opens with, of course, this kind of historical montage but we begin with the uh, with the trial, and over the course of the trial, we get flashbacks of what actually happened. So there's this kind of mystery because 
for most people probably my age, they don't know much about this. I didn't really know anything about this uh, historical event at all. And so I'm kind of leaning forward trying to figure out uh, what's what's going to happen, what actually did happen. And then he'll have these very long scenes in the courtroom where we get a lot of dialogue and it takes place in real time. And then he'll cut and we'll come back maybe a scene or two later and he'll, on the screen will appear day 89. And we're thinking to ourselves, what are these people talking about for 89 days? Because we, we kind of, I mean, we've kind of figured out what the government is trying to do. And it's just this long drawn out ordeal. It reminds me a little bit of referring to Fincher again, but Fincher and Zodiac, he, he constantly in that film, uh, pops up, uh, places, names, dates, because he wants to let you know this investigation is taking a long time time and we we get that sense of time here in this movie yeah the i'm kind of of two minds about the the editing in this picture because yeah i i'm not sure if the the moments where it kind of where sorkin jumps forward in time the way you describe is something uh intentional to sort of make you kind of see how almost monotonous the trial is you know there, there's a an interesting moment in the first third of the picture where um, it's it's sort of the beginning of the trial and Sorkin kind of cuts from one exchange in the courtroom to another exchange. And it almost seems like it's kind of something that could have happened on the same day, right? Like they're, they're kind of talking about the same thing, the uh, the judge's attitude towards the defendant seems the same. It all seems pretty... Uh, close in time to what happened before the cut, but then those titles pop up, and it's you know some it's days and days later, and it creates this interesting almost disorientation on the part of the audience. Like like you said, what could they possibly have been talking about in those intervening few days to bring them back to a point where it seems like it could have just been a few hours from what we saw earlier? That's interesting. I'm not sure if that kind of editing choice carries through to the entire picture in a in a beneficial way there's interesting if but not necessarily good kind of jarring moments of chronology where it seems like we're kind of moving forward in time so that characters are looking back and reminiscing about their time in that trial uh and then there's uh kind of flashbacks to the actual protests while the testimony is being given on the stand. And it it's kind of interesting and it keeps you attentive, but I'm not really sure that structurally speaking, it lends the film the kind of soundness that it needs. It's a little bit, it, at times I guess feels a little bit clumsy. And I guess that's kind of why I don't know if this really represents a huge step forward for Sorkin as a director, because that Relative clumsiness is kind of what I saw in Molly's game as well, and I'm not sure he's really finessed that out of his uh, out of his style yet. Well, you know, I, I I like kind of the jumping forward. I I do think that one of the one of the main issues with the film is uh, is a bit of the editing. So we are going back in time a little bit. That is a, that is clumsy. There's some strange transitions. And then we also get a scene of Sasha Baron Cohen. He's playing Abby Hoffman. And he is performing stand-up. And he's telling the story. So we're going from kind of like courtroom to conversations to him telling the story back and forth and then flashbacks. And and that is that is a little strange strange. For me though, I I think one of the harder problems is because this is kind of a an idea film or a soapbox for Sorkin, which uh, he's he's stood on many soapboxes in the past. Uh Obviously, some of these character relationships are going to seem underdeveloped. And we learn about some of the characters, but there's some unexplored territory here 
because these individuals are all very different. And one of those that I would have liked to seen a bit more is John Carroll Lynch, his character. He's kind of the suburban dad who's a pacifist. He's against the Vietnam War. We later he's learn- a literal boy scout. <laughs> he's a, he's, he is a boy scout. We learned that he was actually against World War II. And I, I would like to see him a little bit more involved. And so it all kind of goes back to if this is about ideas and if characters are really just around to talk about ideas, then it would make sense that some of the finer edges of these character studies and these relationships would be left unexplored. We get some dialogue that goes back between Eddie Redmayne's character and, and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character, and that, that works to an extent, but uh, it's, it's not quite there. And I think that's why Sorkin does need that director who can, who can see through that and, and maybe bring some things to light in the script uh, that maybe Sorkin wouldn't normally do on his own when he's in the director's chair. Yeah, the, there's some... I guess you could call it maybe a problem of focus in in the script where there's lots of different moving pieces in this trial, lots of different characters. And by the end, you don't really get a clear sense of kind of what what Sorkin's thesis statement with this film, right? Like what what is he ultimately trying to to say with it? I mean, beyond the the sol- the surface level statements about the Vietnam War and the importance of justice and uh, sound civic institutions. I mean, that's obviously you know that's all there. But the when the film ends, I'm not really sure that I'm closer to getting at the heart of this story. I guess, and that's partly because there are lots of these miscellaneous pieces floating around that get a little bit of attention, but not enough to flush them out into a fully satisfying whole. And in the meantime, those little pieces are maybe distracting from the the overall uh, thrust of some of the political arguments that Sorkin is making with this picture. I really like, actually, John Carroll Lynch's performance as David Dellinger, but there's kind of this whole business with his family, his wife and his son. Uh, There's a moment where Dellinger has an outburst in the courtroom, which is very out of character for a pacifist. And Sorkin cuts to a shot of his son watching, and his son is wearing a certain expression on his face. The problem is that it's kind of hard to know how to interpret the meaning of this moment. Like, what is... that little boy feeling in that moment. And it's hard to tell because Sorkin hasn't really let the that story breathe. We've only really seen uh, Dellinger's family in one other scene. So it's a little bit difficult for the emotion of that moment to, to land with the force that Sorkin maybe wants it to, which leads you to question whether a better director would have just not included that cutaway at all. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great example of, of even just the how the film is underdeveloped. And you can even look at um, the character of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. His character at the beginning of the film seems poised to be actually even a main character. And he just I don't know, he kind of disappears. And it's weird because he's in the film a lot. He is the prosecutor. He talks a lot, but yet it feels like his character is not present, uh, if, if that makes sense. I, I disagree with you a bit. I, I think I know what Sorkin's getting at. Like, I think I know what he's trying to say. He's trying to talk about the justice system. And he has a number of different characters. Of course, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, even though his character does kind of disappear, he seems to be the individual that has good intentions, but he's caught up in this machine, and he really he feels like he doesn't have any other choice but to pursue this case. You have other people who just really don't care, and then, of course, you have the judge who's actively working against what the justice system should stand for. So it's a film that desires to see justice done and the truth come out. Uh, I don't think that it hits that necessarily, but I think that's what it's aiming for. The end gets me because 
it, and we talked about this before biopics that end in like standing ovations i think it's a little much at the end but sorkin wants to say like maybe maybe every once in a while things go really bad but somehow they might work out uh, so I get it. Uh, it doesn't always work. I do want to point out too. So there is this kind of biblical uh, idea of justice, or this idea, this pursuit of justice, if you will. Maybe not necessarily biblical, but it's this idea that there is justice and there is right and wrong, and we kind of long for it. But sometimes the systems of this world don't offer it to us or give it to us easily. Uh, there is a scene where Sasha Baron Cohen is talking and he gives this really it's 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 weird he gives this great example of interpreting something properly according to context and he uses the words of Jesus to do that now that scene is not overtly religious it just kind of strikes me as oh that's kind of surprising in this in this movie, uh, I thought I'd point it out because it's seeing and believing. Not that there's too much to say about it other than that. <laughs> well, I mean, it is nice to to see that in there, of course. And not being an expert in the trial, I I can't say whether that's like a verbatim uh, bit of testimony from Hoffman's time on the stand. Uh, but I I do kind of wish that that moment had had a little bit more time to breathe, or maybe that entire segment of testimony had been given some time to breathe it's in a way it's almost like a climactic moment it's the only time when any of the defendants are are asked to to answer for themselves under oath on the stand and sorkin kind of gives it five minutes and then it fades to black and we move on to the verdict being rendered and it's it's a little bit disappointing, I guess, especially, you know, given that that moment's all about context, you're kind of wanting more context. You want to see how that testimony concludes and instead just sort of ends. And I guess the distinction between concluding and ending is maybe the the difference for this movie between being being watchable and being, you know, relatively enjoyable and being great. And I think that it's definitely the former Probably not the latter, at least not in my book. Yeah, yeah, not great. But in, I feel like in 2020, uh, it was nice to see this. And as I mentioned, the end is a little much, but perhaps every once in a while we we need a a good Sorkin, uh, overly enthusiastic ending. Maybe Maybe that makes us feel a little bit better. Listeners, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is currently streaming on Netflix. Make sure to let us know what you think if you've seen the film. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. Stick around. We're going to be talking about some films that you need to look out for this fall. Hopefully, if not, maybe look out for in 2021. We're going to talk about some of our most anticipated releases. We'll probably bleed into 2021. We'll probably fudge it a little bit, but we're going to be talking about that here in just a moment. Listeners, that song is Merry Mood by Evan Schaefer Music Studios. We're going to take an opportunity and just say thanks so much for supporting us via our Patreon campaign. When you do that, you keep our show going. If you'd like to support us, just hop on over to Patreon. We've got a lot of great donation levels, and one of those is the what can you buy for $5 level. Get you a lot of perks. And it also, um, it also, I guess, draws attention to the question of uh, what can someone buy for five bucks? And so, Kevin, I, I figured I'd ask you that. 
we haven't talked about this beforehand, so this is off the cuff. We'll get someone to buy it for five bucks. Uh, five dollars would get you a one of those little uh, plastic balls that that you put a gerbil or a hamster inside of, so they can kind of mm. go exploring without getting themselves hurt. So a human sized one of those would probably be pretty nice, especially these days. As the weather gets colder, it keeps you warm. And as uh, certain viruses <laughs> perhaps have experienced certain surges, it's a little bit of a, of a health measure as well. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but there, there is a little virus going around, certain viruses. Um, I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's really great. I, they have some. So whenever I was a youth pastor, a, a big thing was a, they have blow-up ones where you can run kind of wear and run into each other. I never used it or bought any, but those look kind of cool. This one though is a little more functional. It's it's safety first uh, protection. Uh, so definitely check that out for five bucks. Listeners, you can also support us on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. And like we mentioned, we very much appreciate your support. Yeah, we also, uh, if you don't uh, support our Patreon, $5 will also help you become a member of Christ and Pop Culture, which goes to help support the writers who put up content on the site uh, every month. So that's a really good way to get involved as well. That'll give you access, of course, to the members-only form and some monthly perks. It'll also help pay for pieces like uh, one that just was brought out from behind the paywall recently, Wade. So we have the Christ and Pop Culture magazine that is... Uh, something that is uh, initially paywalled, but we make them available for for general readership a few months after they first get published. And one of those pieces that uh, just recently went up on the site is one written by Chris Fogel titled, What the Vast of Night Taught Me About Living in the Moment. And of course, you and I, Wade, we reviewed The Vast of Night on the show, and we even get a shout out in Chris's article. So that was definitely nice to see. Yeah, no, I, I saw that. I thought it was really great. And he touches on kind of something we we talked about is you've got to you've got to pay attention when you watch that film. You have to really listen listen in. It's not something that you watch while you're looking at your phone. You you do have to you have to uh, observe the characters, enter into that story, kind of like you do with a lot of other films in the in the 40s and 50s. So I uh, encourage people to check that article out. And as always, you can send us your thoughts about our podcast, or if you give us a shout out somewhere else like Chris did, oh, we'd love to hear about it. Once again, tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We're back with the second half of our show, and I almost feel like we should open this segment with a bit of a, an apology, a mea culpa, Wade, just because, <laughs> you know, with everything else going on, especially with us uh, going through our film noir marathon, we blew right past the point in the calendar year where it's been our practice in the past to give a fall movie preview and let our listeners know what movies are they? They might want to keep an eye out for in the months ahead. It's just it, it's one of those things that fell by the wayside. Part partly because you know we were occupied with other things, and partly because it's just hard to look ahead to the future with any sort of certainty these days. At least when it comes to movies. Oh yeah, it's like every week there's a there's a film that's supposed to be released, and the date gets changed. Or it's like, oh, now it's going to go to streaming. So everything really is up in the air. We were going to get a new Denis Villeneuve film, Dune, out this year. Oh. It's not happening. We're going to get a new Spielberg film, West Side Story. That's not happening. So I'm a little disappointed, as most people are, <laughs> in 2020. But as I mentioned earlier, there are some movies that are scheduled and some are even already scheduled for streaming, so it's a good chance that we'll see them in 2020. 
Yeah. And, you know, as much as I'm wearing morning clothes uh, for the fact that I'm not going to get to see Dune this year, I was I was really looking forward to that. The silver lining is, you know, it is the sort of movie that you want to be able to see on the big screen without being anxious about other matters. So, you know, maybe it getting moved to 2021 is a blessing in disguise. And like you said, it does kind of free up our attention to look for some of the smaller films, maybe the ones that are going straight to video on demand or streaming Mm. and uh, give those a little bit more attention than they might otherwise give in the, uh, the, the hustle and bustle of Oscar season. So I'm looking forward to, to that part at least. You definitely don't want to hear the Netflix chime or jingle before Dune comes on your cell phone, right? <laughs> That's not Wade, what you want to happen. <laughs> Wade, it, I I feel like I have to ask you as as a brother in Christ, as somebody who's interested in keeping you accountable, have you been watching movies on your cell phone? Uh, Please be truthful. Yeah, I do sometimes. I do sometimes. <gasps> I, Wade. Yeah, but I hold it close to my face, so it's like a big screen TV. Just imagine it's right there. <laughs> Rest in peace, yeah. Wade's retinas. <laughs> no, it's mostly, well, I guess not much anymore, but I, I, I do it mostly on uh, a plane sometimes. So I do have a little iPad now, so sometimes I'll do it on there. So it's very... <laughs> It's very rare when it's on my cell phone. It's very rare, uh, but it does okay. happen every once in a while. Okay. Well, you, you can't see me right now, of course, but I am clutching my pearls <laughs> in horror. I just simply, I, I don't know what to say. I do believe I feel the vapors. But we'll move on from that, uh, that question, Wade, to uh, talk about three of the movies that each of us uh, is excited about. Sometime in the next few months, uh, we're not really going to put too fine a point on the release dates for any of these films just because films have been getting pushed back a lot lately. And so who knows if they will actually make the dates originally scheduled for them. But as of this recording, they are slated to come out sometime in the next few months, and we are looking forward to seeing them. So, uh, yeah, let's get started on that. What do you have as your first film, in no particular order, that you're looking forward to this fall and winter? Yeah, so I, I'm looking for something uh, in this slide. I was looking for something that would be kind of fun. Uh, we all kind of we we all need that, and I'm sure in November we're we're probably going to need that even more. But uh, the movie that I'm actually really excited about is it's called Freaky. Honestly, if this was a horror movie, I'd be one of the first ones to get killed. Cue the creepy dude in the mask. But actually, it turns out. Where am I? I didn't get killed. Oh my god, why do I sound like that? I woke up in the killer's body. And it's scheduled to be released, I don't know where, but somewhere, November 13th. It's Friday the 13th of November. We'll see if it if it sees the light of day. But this film is directed by Christopher Landon. Christopher Landon did the, the first two Happy Death Day films. And I find those to be just this nice mixture of uh, silly, fun, horror comedy. And I, I think both of those films work really well. Uh, this one, uh, written and directed by him, of course. And it plays off of the Freaky Friday story, only in this story, a young girl in high school, she doesn't switch bodies with her mom. She accidentally switches bodies with a deranged serial killer played by Vince Vaughn. And she has to find a way to switch back or it will become permanent. So if that doesn't, if that synopsis doesn't get you a little excited or at least intrigued, (laughs) then I, I don't know what to say to you. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen any of the Happy Death Day uh, movies, either of them. I think there's two of them, right? Yeah, there's there's two. And you, you need to watch them this Halloween. You should do that. Okay. I You know, I actually was kind of wondering what my Halloween viewing should be this year. So maybe a horror comedy would be fun. <laughs> yeah. But I was able to uh, see the trailer for Freaky. And I I have to say, that is a really great way to to freshen up sort of the freaky friday premise and i think vince vaughn when he kind of 
it, it's going to be fun to see him play both this dead behind the eyes serial killer and also a teenage girl trapped in a serial killer's <laughs> body. That's that sounds like a lot of fun to me too. Yeah. So uh, Catherine Newton plays the high school uh, uh, young woman, and I I'm excited to see her take on her version of Vince Vaughn in her body. Like that's that's going to be good. <laughs> and then of course, like you mentioned, Vince Vaughn played by a, a teenage young woman. So it, it, it could be fun. Uh, yeah, like I said, not in necessarily order one, two, three, but this is just one that I'm, I'm excited about and I hope I get to, to check out November. Yeah, that sounds uh, pretty good. Uh, for my uh, first pick to highlight uh, in this segment, I've got another November movie and this is actually an animated feature. It's Tom Moore and Ross Stewart's Wolf Walkers. Uh, from the studio known as uh, Cartoon Saloon. This is these are the people who brought you uh, the Secret of Kells, the Breadwinner, and Song of the Sea. And uh, Tom Moore actually is uh, the director on multiple titles with Cartoon Saloon. So I'm really looking forward to this next effort from him. Uh, in this film, it's set in a time of superstition and magic. Wolves are seen as demonic, and nature is evil. Uh, a young apprentice hunter comes to Ireland with her father to wipe out the last wolf pack, but when she saves a wild native girl, their friendship leads her to discover the world of the wolf walkers and transform her into the very thing her father is tasked to destroy. I mean, that sounds like a really great premise all on its own, but the reason I'm really excited about this is the the continual excellence that Cartoon Saloon brings to its animation style. It's very distinctive. Uh, in some ways, it's it's deceptively simple in in terms of the traditional cell animation. They don't do computer animation; it's hand drawn, and there, there's often kind of this this flatness to it that's very intriguing. In that, uh, for instance, in the Secret of Kells, it kind of looks like an illuminated manuscript. So in some ways it's very flat, but within those confines, Cartoon Saloon just finds incredible ways to fill the frame with color and visual interest. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing them do that with, with this picture as well. Yeah, I am. I'm very excited about this movie. And I, I know that there have been some people who have already seen this film through, I guess, like a, a digital film festival and... I, I need to get on that. I need to watch. I need to check it out. It's just, I, I, it, it looks to be special. And you you talked about some of the production studios' previous movies. They're all just fantastic. And uh, I'm sure this one will be too. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't want to be too controversial here, mm -hmm. but I do have to say that Cartoon Saloon, out of all of the big animation studios currently putting out movies today, Cartoon Saloon's been the one that I've been most consistently impressed and excited by in the last in the last decade. And that goes for Studio Ghibli and Pixar. I like them both a lot, but mm. Cartoon Saloon, I think, has really been a cut above. And so I'm really hopeful to see if they keep the streak going with this film. Well... You you mentioned uh, Pixar is the subject of my next pick, and that is the Pete Doctor and Kemp Powers film Soul. Music moves people. I'm Joe. I teach middle school band. Music is life. You just need to know where to look. Though we are parting ways. Shall come around to touch eyes again if love is the foundation. If the purpose be to recycle life, I promise I'll bring us to spend your precious hours doing what will bring out the real you, love, the brilliant, passionate you love, love, that's ready to contribute something meaningful into this world. Love, love. Get ready. Your life is about to start. So this is about a, a musician. He has lost his passion for music, and he's basically kind of transported out of his body. And he's he's got to find the uh, his way back. Uh, and there's this 
sort of soul that's helping him. Uh, Pete Doctor, he's done some of Pixar's best films, uh, including uh, Up and Inside Out and uh, Monsters, Inc. I mean, he's just, he's he's one of their all-stars. And I'm excited to watch this film. And, I, and I'm also really kind of wondering... It, P. Doctor has been open about his Christian faith. I'm wondering what this movie might say about spiritual matters, uh, perhaps life after death, uh, not just following our passions, but uh, finding a purpose and meaning. And, and what, is that, uh, what does that lead to? Where do we find that? So I'm excited about this movie. It was just announced that it will be on Disney Plus beginning December 25th. So part of the normal streaming package, you won't have to pay extra for it. And I'm I'm pretty sad that uh, I can't watch this movie in theaters because, I mean, the animation from Pixar is just gorgeous. At the same time, I am excited. I do get to see this in 2020, and it looks to be pretty special. And the, the reviews that have come in just this last week have been ecstatic. Like, this is one of Pixar's best type of aesthetic. So we'll kind of see how it all pans out. But yeah, uh, Soul is going to be on Disney Plus December 25th. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by Soul for for all the reasons you mentioned as well. I think of Pixar's stable of directors, I... Pete Doctor might be my favorite. I really like all of the films that he's he's put out with with Pixar. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with this one. I am hopeful that it kind of just doesn't amount to inside out except with <laughs> spirits rather than emotions. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm withholding judgment and it is encouraging to know that it has been getting pretty strong word of mouth so far. Yeah. Yeah, so that I was I was already excited uh, to see it. But the early reviews have just been great. And hopefully it's not just like this, oh, we haven't seen as many films in 2020, so every kind of big release, we're just going to like lower the bar a little bit. Uh, hopefully it's really just kind of genuine excitement, and, and this movie's just great. So yeah, December 25th, uh, Christmas Day, our own little Christmas present. Yeah, something to look forward to for sure. Uh, my next movie that I'm looking forward to is another one that is currently slated for a December release. Uh, it's the new film from Chloe Zhao, and uh, she's actually got a couple of new movies that are in the near future. One of them is probably the more high-profile project Marvel's Eternals film. She is uh, slated as the director on that, and, you know, that's... That's fine if that's your speed, but I think what Zhao's real strength is is, chron- is smaller movies that maybe uh, have a more uh, intimate level kind of perspective on uh, its subject matter. I really liked Zhao's uh, earlier film, The Rider. Uh, that was, I think, on my top 10 of mm. that year. I think it's just a- an incredible film, and it's just so quietly observational about these characters living in America's heartland and just going about their lives and struggling with very human, uh, very perhaps insignificant uh, compared to universe spanning threats that we get from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think Zhao is her real talent is really in these smaller stories. And her new film, Nomadland, uh, looks to be a real winner. It's got Francis McDormand in it, so that's another point in his favor right away. But McDormand plays a woman in her 60s who loses everything in the Great Recession, embarks on a journey through the American West, and lives as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. The combination of director and star and that premise makes it sound 
both very timely and also just one that you can sit with and just be entranced by the the talent both behind the camera and in front of it. Yeah, well, I, I do have to let listeners know we had, we had decided that we were going to try to make our, our lists unique. And so this would be on my list, but <laughs> I'm just going to say, I'll let you have it. I'll let you have this one. Uh, <laughs> I, I won the rock, paper, scissors uh, contest to get this yeah, one. So. It, well, and speaking of early reviews, the early reviews for this movie has been stellar as well. And so that just gets me even more excited. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm really hoping we'll see this movie uh, in, in 2020. Yeah, here's here's hope and fingers crossed. I can't wait. So I am going to go with uh, my my last pick. And listeners of the show uh, probably won't be surprised. We actually discussed this filmmaker's filmography back in the summer. We talked about all of David Fincher's films. We ranked them. His newest picture, Mank, is going to premiere uh as of right now, on Netflix on December 4th. And this follows the screenwriter, Herman J. Mankiewicz. He is uh, one of the individuals who penned uh, Citizen Kane. And there's a lot of conflict on how much of the script he wrote and how much of the script Orson Welles uh, uh, tweaked. So I'd like to see that played out on screen. And here's here's a kind of another layer, too, is... David Fincher's father, Jack Fincher, uh, was a screenwriter. And looking up on IMDb, he doesn't have any credits to his name. I know he's he's written some screenplays that didn't get picked up. He uh, passed away a number of years ago, but he wrote the screenplay for this film, and it was kind of passed around. It got stuck in development for years and years and years. Uh, but eventually, his son. Uh, picked it up and made it. So that's really kind of fascinating. And of course, uh, we got Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz. So this should be this should be a lot of fun. And it it just from the trailer, it seems very different from your normal David Fincher film. And and that that gets me excited. Yeah, the the fact that he's he's working with with that cinematography in this picture makes it seem. I mean, it does give it this prestige veneer, right? Yeah. But it's also interesting because Fincher isn't really, he's not known for going to that kind of super prestige well as much as maybe another director such as, you know, like Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List, that kind of thing we maybe expect from him. Fincher is kind of, you know, the, the gone girl guy, the Zodiac guy, mm-hmm. the panic room guy. Uh, and so seeing him work in, in that register is going to be interesting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if our listeners have not seen the trailer, it is in black and white. And uh, it, it it's definitely going to play with 1930s, 1940s Hollywood. Uh, it it almost feels like these characters are stuck in this strange Hollywood purgatory. So uh, that that can be, of course, uh, stifling, which works well, I think, with uh, Fincher's milieu. So uh, yeah, that film is going to be hitting Netflix early December, and uh, I'm sure. I can I can prophesy with my eyes open that we're going to talk about it at some point on the show. Uh, I think that that aspect of our crystal ball is definitely going to be accurate. <laughs> we are going to be talking about Mank for sure. Uh, I'll wrap things up with a film that I'm looking forward to, and I'm fudging this one a little bit, Wade, because as of right now, it's not technically slated for a 2020 release, but it is coming out uh, currently... Uh, I believe in January is when it's plant when it's kind of going to make its big bow for general audiences, and that is Lee Isaac Chung's film Minari, and this is a a feature film. Uh, Chung is maybe best known for being the director of a documentary Moon Yuran Gabo. It's a what came out in 2007 and it got a whole lot of love at film festivals the the world over but in this film he is returning to uh fiction features in telling a story about a Korean immigrant family that moves to a a tiny farm in Arkansas and kind of try to 
make the American dream work for them. They try to, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, hard work and really try to make things work in their new adopted home. Uh, but uh, perhaps predictably, it's very difficult for them. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. Yes. And I mean, if you've seen this trailer, Wade, then you know that it looks like exactly this sort of delicate uh, family drama that yeah. is right up my alley. You know, I love uh, Yasujiro Ozu. And while stylistically, this may not have a whole lot in common with his films, in terms of its subject matter, it definitely seems to be birds of a feather with Ozu's work. And I'm really interested to see both what Chung does with this and also what Stephen Yun does as the uh, in the role of kind of the the father, the patriarch of this family. I, you know, I first came to know Yun through his work on uh, The Walking Dead, mm -hmm. but saw him later. Uh, we both did in Burning, the uh, oh yeah, the the South Korean film that just got so much uh, awards attention when it came out, and he was kind of a revelation for me in that film, just playing this this very morally ambiguous. A uh, rich guy who may or may not be a villain, and Stephen Yun just did such an incredible job with that role that I'm really interested to see how his range extends to cover the role in this film. So uh, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari looks just like an absolutely breathtaking film, and I can't wait to see it. Oh, I'm so excited about this movie. This is another film too that has been kind of cropping up in different virtual film festivals and i have not had a chance to watch it but i i need to i need to pay better attention uh so i can i can get that but yeah that is uh that's a film that i'm very excited about yeah, definitely one to get excited about for sure. I do need to walk back what I said a little bit earlier. I did mention that it should be coming out in January, and that actually may or may not be correct. The release date as of right now is listed as coming soon on A24's website. Okay. <laughs> so it is up in the air, perhaps, if it's actually going to be released in the next few months. But I've been hearing so much about it, and it has been playing some festivals uh, around the United States here in October. So hopefully we'll be seeing it soon. I'll definitely be waiting for it with bated breath either way. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's exciting. Whether we see it this year or next year, is it's going to be uh, it's going to be a, a fun, a fun watch, listeners. That is our show for you. Before we head out, though, we want to bring back a segment we haven't brought back in a while because we've been doing our summer of noir series, and that is our recommendation segment. This is the part of the show where we recommend something to you, our listeners, something to get you through this season. Kevin, what would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you actually brought up the, the film noir series that we were doing for a long time because my recommendation for this week is a movie that I actually saw while I was digging into noir uh, during that series, but it was a film that we ended up not actually discussing on the show. And it's the 1950 film Night and the City, directed by mm. Jules Dessen. And this is a, uh, a really interesting film. I mean... Uh, Jules Dassin is, is probably best known for uh, directing uh, the great, great noirish heist thriller Rafifi, which I love to pieces. This film is actually made in the English language, though, uh, and it was made with uh, an all-English cast, and it's set in London, which is just uh, maybe not what you would have expected from the ultra French director of Rafifi, but it's kind of this very uh, 
packed feeling film. It's got a, a large cast led by Richard Widmark playing a man named Harry Fabian, who's kind of a con man looking for his big score. He thinks he has it in this wrestling match that he helps uh, set up between two big name wrestlers. Of course, in the grand tradition of noir, things don't go according to plan. <laughs> and uh, Fabian Sue finds his life under threat. But uh, in addition to Widmark, you've got Gene Tierney in this film. You've got just a, an incredible cast. And I, I think what's interesting about this film is whereas a, a lot of noirs feel very claustrophobic and very focused on a few people, it feels like Night in the City scope expands to mm. include not just this large cast of characters, but the city of London itself. And I just, I found that so compelling to watch. And it was kind of a hidden gem. I, I hadn't really heard very much about it before uh, checking it out from the library. So I definitely want to spread the word about this film. It's a good, slightly outside the lines noir if anyone's looking for a picture like that. So yeah, 1950s, Night in the City. That's great. I have, I've, been wanting to see it. I just have not had a chance to yet. And libraries, I know down here are back. Uh, you can place holds, you can pick stuff up. So that's a film that I need to definitely check out here in the near future. So Kevin, periodically, whenever I offer my recommendation, I'll say something like, hey, I don't know if I necessarily recommend this film, but it's a new film. I have seen it and I want to offer a short capsule review just in case our listeners are wondering and i had a chance to catch a a screener for the liam neeson action film honest thief and uh, i know it got released this past weekend and i wanted to briefly talk about it you know i i like most of the liam neeson's action films i i like the plane one i like the train one I like the multiple kidnapping ones. I like the memory one, the wolf one, the snow one. I I like a lot of his action movies. Uh, sadly, was not a huge fan of Honest Thief. If you're like me and you just want to be a Liam Neeson action film completist, then you definitely should watch it. But it it's uh, it's about a thief who wants to be honest and he wants to turn himself in, and things go wrong when he is. Uh, He's betrayed by a couple of FBI agents. <laughs> you know, if Liam Neeson is this incredible thief, I want to see him doing some thieving stuff. I want to see him just putting his abilities on stage, uh, on, on the front of the stage. And he, he does some fighting and he, he makes some bombs, but that's about it. And so for a film called The Honest Thief, um, I found it to be pr pretty, pretty rote. So that is just kind of my my short encapsulation of a movie that I wanted to like and just uh, didn't really like in case anybody wants to check out uh, Honest, Honest Thief. Uh, I, I think it's in theaters and also I, I think it might be streaming as well. So I, I am curious to know, Wade, I, I actually uh, wasn't able to catch this myself because it isn't currently on, on streaming or oh, on demand. Okay. So you can only see it in theaters uh, currently, but it definitely it will probably be making its way to those platforms later on. You did mention that there's a, uh, you know, there's Liam Neeson fighting terrorists on 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 trains and planes, mm -hmm. finding kidnappers who kidnapped various members of his family. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious to know what kind of one line encapsulation would fit Honest Thief. Is it, you know, Liam Neeson heisting? Like, is he is he heisting in this film? I, I don't really know. Well, no, I'm curious no, to, to know he, what it is. That's the, that's, that's the problem. He's done heisting. He wants to be honest. And he tries to turn himself in. And instead, these C these FBI agents double cross him, and so now he's oh, okay. trying to stop the agents. I, I here's what I'm hope here's what I was hoping for, right? And I know we joke about this, but I thought this was going to be a film about a thief who got himself in trouble by heisting, and has to get himself out of trouble by <laughs> heisting, and that was what I want. That's what I wanted in a Liam Neeson honest thief movie. I did not get that and was thus oh. sorely disappointed. Well, like you said, though, if you're a Neeson completist, maybe this film 
would be for you. And if nothing else, Wade, we can at least say that this film's legacy is that it led to the coining of the verb form of heist here on Seeing in Blue. So, you know, th- that's not nothing. <laughs> that, that, that's definitely something. Listeners, as always, make sure to send us your thoughts at C Belief Pod. If you've seen the on if you've seen Honest Thief, uh, let me know what you thought at C Belief Pod on Twitter or seeing and believing CAPC at gmail.com. Make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopculture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.